Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Tim Brannigan, welcome to the Hipstorians podcast with myself, Neil, and my co historian Derek Mulligan and of all the stories you've come across so far yours is one of the more how should I say unusual to put it very very mildly you you wrote a book some several years ago where are you really from okay and in in that book you you kind of relate what it was like growing up as a black kid in West Belfast in the 1970s now I was born uh, in the 70s myself in, in Dublin, probably completely different life to your own. But this is what fascinates us in the historians, different people's lives and, and their backgrounds. And in, in this book, I mean, it's an astonishing, astonishing story right from the start. And, you know, I was, I was telling my wife about this story and she, she was asked me to, to kind of get you to elaborate on it. Because so you, you were born but you're, they, then you were given up for adoption and then adopted by your real mum. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Just for the interest of our, of our listeners who may not be familiar with the story, could you kind of explain that, how, how that happened and the background to that? Yeah, and my head was in a different time space because mm. I guess um, I was watching the, the, the royal funeral there for... Mm an hour or two this morning and then I noticed that Sinn Féin leader Michelle O'Neill had tweeted that she was at it and she was there to pay her respects and stuff and then um, and it sort of made me viscerally angry as well you know and I wrote mm. a series I wrote a series of replies to that tweet but never sent them I don't think I sent them I know I know that I pulled my horns in on some, I would be a sort of a, a critic, or I would offer a critique, rather, of Sinn Féin leadership's position on all of this, and the Sinn Féin leadership position on almost everything they do, you know? Mm. So, when I woke up there, I was weighing up whether to comment on Sinn Féin and what they're doing mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and I was, I was going to turn the TV on, whatever, you know? My, my emotions are a bit flipping raw at the moment about things and um, I'm full of what I want to say about that, but I'm now mm. trying to recalibrate. Well, and, if, um, if, you, if you want to dial it back, you were talking about you're watching, it's a very historic day, yeah. um, whether whichever side of the fence you're on, it's obviously today we speak about the, the funeral of the Queen. Elizabeth II, as she's known in, in Britain, and today, yeah. so it's a big, big historic day. But you, you have some strong feelings about that you were saying to us earlier. Now that I'm considering my history, I, I guess now, and the question has been for some time, really, and it's an issue you'll probably want to talk about, but I guess I think to myself, 
watching her, I think, why did I go to jail? Why did I jeopardize my future? Why are so many Republicans in the cemetery just down the street here, the Milltown mm. Cemetery? Why are so many ex-prisoners walking around here, a lot of whom have did life and who've come out and either aren't working or leading very, you know, they might be security men and things like that, right? Sometime next year, I'm going to appear on a documentary for the BBC. They're doing a big series about the North. And I was asked a question, and it's not a, you know, it wasn't a gotcha question, it was just part of the process. And it's a question I've, and a point that has been made before. Ever since I was asked it, um, you know, I've kicked it around in my head. And the question was, I was sitting in this interview speaking uh, proudly as a Republican, right? So the question was asked, why did the IRA kill more nationalists than the British and the loyalists did? You know? And I live in West Belfast. This used to be called the cockpit seat of West Belfast, Jerry Adams' IRA stronghold, you know, mm. the, and Martin McGuinness used to talk about the Belfast Brigade being the, you know, where all the other IRA units would have looked up to as leading the struggle and stuff like that. So mm. we were flipping them, um, fetishized and, and eulogized and lionized mm. for three decades. And and one of the points that Adams McGuinness, Danny Morrison would make, would have made, was that, um, you know, when the trouble started initially, we were fighting for the Irish people, right? That's what the IRA would have said in 1971, two, whatever. But people in Dublin didn't feel like, hold on, you, you just committed Bloody Friday and killed 11 people or whatever, nine people. Gene mm. McConville was killed. That You're mm. not doing that in Arnie. And mm. So then the IRA statements and Sinn Féin statements started to change and, they, and it ended up that we were representing the oppressed, quote marks again, the oppressed nationalist people of the North. Right? And um, so the oppressed nationalist people of West Belfast, for example, a people so precious that Sinn Féin and the IRA were prepared to go to war to fight on their behalf, right? But now all of a sudden, we're, we're not, the word of, the word of, the phrase oppressed nationalist people has gone. You know, it's never been said again. I think it went shortly after the ceasefire was called, right? We're now difficult to reach communities mm. and people, people, uh, living in poverty and so on, those, those types of phrases that are said by people in suits and people with clipboards, voluntary sector type agencies and stuff like that, use all this language. And Sinn Féin now use it to describe the people who they used to lionise as a noble people and um, people with a desire for freedom. And, uh, and I said, well, if, that's, if, those, if this is who you thought we were, what on earth are you voting for austerity for? Why are you voting for the welfare deal? I absolutely shred Sinn Féin in these issues, right? So the entire party, from the brand new member who joined in Tralee last week, right up to Jerry Adams, 
if I ask them a question on Twitter or stuff, I just get blanked, right? I'm persona non grata now, right? Mm. And uh, and I even get, you know, and as I said to someone in the supermarket the other day, I, you know, I was having a similar similar conversation and she was a Republican and I was saying, you know, I'd have died for these guys. Mm. Now they won't even ask me, answer me questions about what I would have been dying for. And, and the reason they wanted me to die and is a cause that they no longer espouse. Mm. They no longer, uh, for example, the war, as it was called, is now referred to only as a conflict, right? Mm. And Michelle O'Neill, even recently, there upset a lot of people mm. by saying, Michelle O'Neill upset a lot of people there by saying, um, we had no choice. But I had a choice. I graduated from Liverpool, uh, John Moore's University in, in 1990 with a degree in politics. And I was living in England. I had the world at my oyster. Uh, uh, the world was my oyster there, you know, the world at my feet. And I could have went on and joined my friends in London mm. and, uh, you know, got a wee job. Probably re- in those days, your degree really did help get you a decent yeah. job, you know. Um, I could have done all that. Within three or four months of me graduating, I was in jail on IRA charges because of my commitment. So I chose to walk away from having a life in London or anywhere or Belfast, whatever. There was no inevitability about it. It was 1990. John Hume was making a very cogent, rational argument as to why I should probably go and follow the university course and follow my friends. Jerry Adams was making this other uh, much more emotive, much more revolutionary appeal to me. And I went the Jerry Adams route and I end up in jail and uh, and now they cannot defend anything about that conflict. They, you know, two, two years ago, Jerry Kelly, Sinn Féin, but an IRA leader, the guy who bombed the Old Bailey in 1973 and then went on a hunger strike where they force fed him. And there's famous photographs of him with her attempting to force feed him and Dolores Price, you know, of them laying on a hospital bed or something. But they were, the Brits tried to force feed them, Price knowing their markets and all that. Mm. So Jerry Kelly put out a a statement 25th of September, two years ago, saying the anniversary of the big escape from the H-blocks, one of Big Bob's best best jobs, right? Bobby's stories was behind the, the escape, right? One of Big Bob's best jobs. Jeffrey Donaldson and the unionists started to go a bit mad about it all, right? And said, oh, you're glorifying terrorism. And a man was killed in that operation. And, you know, and what, what's this got to do with the peace process? And why are you glorifying terrorists and all that, right? Jerry Kelly. No one in car bombed the old Bailey and went on a hunger strike. And then went on to lead a a fairly fucking active, you know, IRA career. He apologised, right? Now, he didn't say, I'm totally sorry, but he he backtracked and he said, you know, if I've hurt anyone, so on and so forth. But there was a conflict and all sides were hurt. 
And so from becoming, from being a, a revolutionary working class organization that, you know, absolutely had the moral high ground in 19, as soon as the Brits shot everyone on Bloody Sunday, the IRA and Republicans had the moral high ground, right? They then uh, went on the offensive for a lot of, say, 71, the IRA was still quite a defensive organisation. Probably, well, I suppose after Bloody Sunday in 71, then they would have decided, right, we're, gonna, we're getting stuck in here, you know? So that was a choice, to get stuck in mm. and not to look to John Hume and take the sting out of the situation. Mm. The IRA put literally an explosive charge into a situation, right? I, I resent that we, they that now the same leadership now presents itself as oh we big boys made us do it and in 1977 we got Maura Maura Drum Sinn Fein leader her husband delivered a famous Republican speech and it was called the Long War right mm-hmm. and it was saying it was in 1970 when I was a kid painting on the walls. Victory 72, Victory 73, Victory 74. Every new year, the, the, the update the, the time on the mural, you know. And then they realised, we're not, this isn't going to be short and fast. So Jerry Adams and Danny Morrison, Martin McGuinness, they were the ones behind this new strategy for Sinn Féin and for the IRA. And they spoke about the long war. That was a choice. That was us saying, we're going to kill people. We're going to keep killing people and it's going to go on for years, right? But now they've got Michelle O'Neill, televisual, friendly, attractive woman with no IRA past and she's running around kissing Royal Arch like there's no tomorrow. But as I said um, last week, no one, absolutely no one in Milltown Cemetery or any other grave around this island, no one died for what they're doing. They're not about the. They're not about uh, socialism. I'm a socialist, much more than a republican. So yeah, this is a challenging day. So do do you feel because you made those sacrifices for uh, using your symbol, the cause? Do you feel that the way things are being portrayed now, particularly on this historic day, that you've been and your comrades have been betrayed? Is is that why you feel? Oh yeah, that that's that's the word I was toying with this morning. I have used it before, so I think I used it last week when Alex Maskey spoke of and the and the king visited Belfast. You know, and I know Alex Maskey. You know what I mean? I know all the most of the, the Sinn Féin leadership. I don't know Mary Lou or O'Neill, but the old ladies ones. Adams and a lot of the guys who were ex-prisoners and were in jail when I was in jail, they're the driving force behind a lot of this, right? And they, they won't appear on TV groveling like that, right? Mm. Or when they do, they're going to make it look like a major global event, like when Martin McGuinness shook the Queen's hand, right? Mm. Now, I think he was wrong to do it, but he did it. Say la vie, right? But in the years since that, the British courts have shut down judicial system are still denying Irish people justice in the courts. Last week, there was somebody arrested for the Manchester bomb, right? Mm. And, and I'm saying, what's good? 
this is all premature. We're thanking a leader whose court system is still screwing over the victims of Bloody Sunday and the Ballamurphy massacre and all those who are seeking justice. And now there's going to be a bill brought in that there cannot be any more prosecutions of British army soldiers. So the guys who pulled the triggers for those various mass shootings are getting away with it, right? What what would be the alternative then, Tim? What would you like to have seen happen? Would you like to have seen them still have a standoff attitude and not take seats in in Parliament and not attend royal funerals? Well, I was at... um, I was at the 1986 Ardesh where Sinn Féin split and Rory O'Brody went and formed Republican Sinn Féin. That was a legendary, and that was when we decided to end abstentionism in the South and recognise the Doyle, right? And, and these are both on YouTube, and they're, as historians, they're remarkable bits of video, but Martin McGuinness gave a speech on behalf of the Army Council, basically, right? Um, And Rory O'Brody predicted the future for Sinn Féin if they went down that road. And I was in the Martin McGuinness camp, staunch as fuck, up the rah. And I thought O'Brody had had got it wrong. My God, O'Brody listed, he said, first, you know, you say that you won't be uh, contaminated by constitutional politics and the uh, tweedledum, tweedledee politics, as Sinn Féin like to call it, of the South. And McGuinness was denying all this. And he said, and then you'll recognise the cops and then you'll recognise Stormont and you'll take your steep seats in Stormont and all of that, right? Oh, my God. He was right on every point and Martin McGuinness was wrong on every point. And I say that as someone who wanted Martin McGuinness to be right and as someone who, after that, took major decisions about my contribution to the Republican struggle and changed my life, you know? And O'Brody was right. And they did become the constitutional nationalists. My God, doesn't get much more constitutional than flying to Britain to pay homage to the Queen, you know? You couldn't get them to mention the word armed struggle anymore. You know, it was just a conflict. They never mentioned the IRA, you know. They will talk about volunteers. Say if it was a local commemoration in this area, it would just say a commemoration for the volunteers or, or Republican commemoration. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to give you a good example of anniversaries of certain deaths and stuff of well-known Republicans. They'll say things like, he died. Um, and I pulled somebody up about this a couple of weeks ago. I said, no, he didn't die. He was shot dead by the British Army. And he was mm. armed. And it was a gun battle. He was shot dead. And he was an active service. You know, it was in the freeze, our active service units. But it's all become very passive now. And it's mm. all, oh, there was a, a conflict. Let's not get bogged down in how it started or who's to blame, you mm. know. But mm. all, uh, all sides suffered. And, that, yeah. and that's, that's Sinn Féin now. Can I just bring it back to that student who graduated and we're talking there, you had a, a very a very clear, Pardon? actually, so you were bringing us back there as, as a student in Liverpool, I understand, where you'd graduated and you had a very real option to go and join your friends in London, very glamorous, big city. And at a time when you were saying a PhD could actually get you a job. But 
you then added another very clear choice to co- come back to to Belfast and join the struggle, the cause, if if, if that's the right terminology, and mm-hmm. served for it. What was there a very concrete decision in your mind to make that choice? Was it was yes. it was it was it as clear as black and white? Yeah, there was no accident. I, I formally went and spoke to people and thought about where I was at in life and what contribution I could make and. Yeah. Um, where my talents might best be, you know, because I would have been good for doing PR for them or anything, you yeah, know. Yeah. And, and I wanted to get into journalism as a career at the time, and I was, you know, <sighs> so yeah, yeah. Well, I went very up, clear, very, very. I went up was quite a little formal process and whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. it was done over a period of time, and a lot of people think that I was a, a householder, that I happened to be one of those families or people who. The Ra used their house, the gear got caught, and I end up, you know, right. effectively yeah. that's what happened. But no, I, I was, I was fairly active. Yeah. I, no, I don't even, you don't even have to read into that. I don't mean that I was running up and down the Falls Road having gun battles with the SAS. Yeah. It wasn't, I don't mean that. <laughs> I had a, I had a role and it was important. Um, and, and like everyone in the Republican movement, you know, I, 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 I took it seriously and, yeah. uh, I took the politics of it all seriously, and and I guess this is what's wrong with Sinn Féin at the minute, is um, they're very unserious people, you know? The leadership are unserious people. Don't get me wrong, they're dangerous people and they're committed and stuff, but they're unserious. They're unserious about politics. They're unserious about um, what they've done in the past, what their responsibilities are. You know, they're very glib about voting for austerity actually i have to do something you know yeah it's, and, it's populist it's become quite populist i think you know, oh just, it, it really yeah. has and the fact that it votes for austerity um and is now and and has ridiculous ridiculous policy differences north and south so it's against fox hunting in the south and it's pro fox hunting in the north Okay, mm, and yeah. and they only announced that earlier this year, and I, I I must have walked a million miles around the prison yards in the day, and not once did anyone talk about being pro fox hunting, you know, yeah. or pro or pro royal or pro austerity <laughs> or pro low, low corporation tax. You yeah. know what I mean? But Sinn Féin just they just say, uh, well, well, what what are the what are the big what are the big parties doing? So we'll steal that policy. We'll steal the SDLP's policy policy. We'll do that. We'll fucking kiss the Queen's arse yeah. and head off Fianna Foy, Fianna Gael on that one, you know? And yeah. that's what they're doing all over the shop. But it makes a mockery and it is betrayal, lads. It is betrayal of the guys, men and women, you know, five minutes down the road there in Milltown Cemetery, who believed all the propaganda and the, the IRA posters we are fighting for a 32-county Democratic Socialist Republic, you yeah. know? Different time though, Tim. Like, was you know, and don't things change? Politics, people evolve. Principles don't change. You know, if you're a socialist opposed to a, a socialist Republican, you don't become a monarchist. You mm. know what I mean? And shouldn't feel tripping over themselves to be seen with the monarchy. You know that that's yeah. not a one-off. Shouldn't feel at that all the time. No, it's, it's and, a uh, Yeah. When Prince when Prince Charles went to Mullingar or wherever I'm about to uh, visit. A few years ago, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness and Mary Lou invited themselves. They weren't invited. 
and they went down because they were talking about the bomb and, and Mount Batten being killed and all of that. And they went down and started simping around and, oh, we're all sides suffered and we are, we are very sorry for your loss and all of that, you know. Mm. Mary Lou, st- when Mary Lou replaced, when this is an acid test, like when Mary Lou replaced Jerry Adams, one of her first things she had to do was to, you know, whatever time of the year it was or whatever, the uh, Easter Rising commemoration came around. Easter came around. So that's the biggest day of the year for Republicans. So there's a big rally, a big commemoration in Milltown Cemetery. And Mary Lou spoke at it. And the next day I read, or on the Sunday night, I, I saw transcript of what she'd said. And I read through it. And she mentioned, now, I don't know when she took over, 2017 maybe, um, Adam stood down. Uh, so maybe Easter 2018. And she made this speech and she mentioned the Me Too movement and various other social movements that um, were inspiring to her and whatever. She did not mention even as she stood on their graves, she did not mention the IRA, the armed struggle, anything about the conflict, did not mention it. And, and I, I looked online and there was no discussion or anything. And then I realised no one has fucking seen this. No one has noticed this. And you're standing on Easter Sunday and you're thinking, we should just hurry up so we can get to the bar. You know, you're not, less, you're not tuned into everything that's being said. But, and I now realise, and I called it out then, I said it was a fucking disgrace, right? But I now realise Sinn Féin's speeches, like everything, like Michelle O'Neill's tweets this morning, no, they're all written for her. She doesn't write that nonsense, yeah. right? Um, she can't appear on TV without cue cards, you know? Yeah. And, if the, and Sinn Féin, if they can, they keep her off the TV, right? But... So I, I've lost my train of thought, but I called, I called them out on it anyway. And then I realised this speech has been grouped. This has been written by a group. This has been written by the IRA leadership, right? And then I realised this was the moment where they were going to ditch any fucking reference to the struggle and the armed struggle. And, and they would just make Easter Sunday be as banal and as bland as it may be. No offence, lads down in the south at a Fianna Foyle event, right? And uh, and I called them out on it. And one, one Sinn Féin guy writes a, a weekly column in the Irish News, Jim Gibney. And he wrote, so I, I called them out on the Sunday night, Monday, and on the Wednesday, he wrote a column for the paper. And the headline of it was, of course Republicans honour their dead. And I realised, fuck, I'm the only one who called them out. And they've been frightened by it and uh, and they reacted and in the next year when she did her speech the opening line was we are gathered here today to honor the republican dead you know and uh i have a bit of i have a wee bit of a profile right no not much i don't claim to be i'm not an influencer in any circle i'm sitting in a fucking flat in west belfast with no electric at the minute you know what i mean so uh, I have I have electric, or I, I will have electric when I nip to the corner shop, or uh, <laughs> or or, pre- or even hit the emergency button. But I would have I would have to leave my flat and run down to the utility yeah. room to do that. Oh do oh do you mean uh, do you mean the fifty p to, to cheat on the meter? 
You, well, I, <laughs> I didn't know that one. Yeah. I didn't know that one. But <laughs> oh, all right, right, right. What, at what point do you think in time that I suppose we're talking about principles that your principles and Jerry Adams' principles would have started to diverge? I certainly give them a fair wind between um, the ceasefire being called and the Good Friday Agreement I was on board. And for a few years after the Good Friday Agreement from 98 on through, it was just talks about talks as they tried to get the assembly up. You know, the Good Friday Agreement was the framework and then they had to put meat on the bones. And and um, so it just went into years of talks, during which time I became a journalist at the Irish News and stuff and, and pursued my own, you know, and because I was a journalist as well, I'd left the movement anyway. I, I think when I came out, and certainly when the, I realised, you know, this, this ceasefire, they aren't messing around, the armed yeah. struggle's over. And then I thought, well, uh, and I looked around and I realised that people had two cars at their doors and had holiday each year and maybe a couple of city breaks and things. And I thought, Jesus, fuck, I've, I've been left behind, you know. So I started to work and pursue a career and all of that. About the late 2000s, I started to think things haven't changed much here. Now, admittedly, Sinn Féin were bogged down in whole procedural talks about talks and nonsense, right? But in that time, I'm thinking, hmm, things haven't changed much here. And, I, and, and then I, I read things that they did. Uh, Connor Murphy was the finance uh, development minister or something. Spent £13 million putting water meters into people's houses. And I said, I thought you were opposed to meter charges. And uh, they said, we are, we are. And I said, well, what, what's this about? And I said, oh, that's uh, They denied it. They denied it for years, started to deny it. But they used to have a big banner outside the Sinn Féin Centre on the Falls Road. We were opposed to water charges. It came down. It was quietly taken down. So that life in West Belfast, life as a Northern Republican, is very much like one of my favourite books, it's like being in an animal farm or well, right? Okay. Where the rules are changed overnight and the leadership take for themselves the grandeur, the, you know, start they start going to uh, Windsor Castle for banquets and things, you know, and always dressing it up as a, a major move to solve the peace process or to save the peace process, but eh, fucking weren't. The peace process was safe because the people making these gestures were the guys who controlled the guns, you know, yeah. and the guys who called the war on and off. And, and every one of them is now interested in self-preservation and living a good life, you know. Guys I was in, in jail with are now multiple landlords. What the fuck are you doing? You know, yeah. and, and Sinn Féin are, are blocking in West Belfast, voting against social housing. Absolute chaos, chaos. Yeah. But we're in a nationalist moment in this country and a lot is going to be forgiven as long as you rally to the flag and claim that you're, you know, you want a United Ireland. You know, I mean, even Fianna Gael have been moved to this position now. I want yeah. a United Ireland, you know. So in the nationalist in this nationalist moment, everything is forgiven. And, and snide Republicans were saying to me last week, Tim, see the bigger picture. See the bigger picture. Do you know? I've been seeing the bigger fucking picture since 1972. 
Victory 73 was the bigger picture. Victory 74 was the long war was the bigger picture, you know. So it's always jam tomorrow with the with Jerry Adams and people around them, you know. And they're now guilty. They're now absolutely guilty of everything that in the 1980s they told me that Fine Gael and Fine Foil were about, you know, sham republicanism, token gestures, you know, um, populism and no sense of principle, you know, right-wing populism at that. Sinn Féin's all over that now. Two years ago, they had the BLM sort of uprising around the world and there were rallies. There was a rally in Belfast. Sinn Féin told people not to attend it and supported the cops who went in and tried to fine us all um, under anti-terror legislation and uh, brought the fucking ringleaders, I'm starting to sound like Sinn Féin, brought the leaders of the BLM rally to court. Okay. And I'm saying, and I'm saying, and I called them out, Mary Lou McDonald, Michelle O'Neill, Jerry Adams, all, all of them publicly on Twitter, replied to them and just said, are you going to condemn this? Because at the minute, you have managed to get the Republican movement on the same side as the Tories and Trump's America when it comes to BLM, you know? And to this day, none of them have apologised. And, and I know that, well, I know this for certain, privately they go, fuck him, fuck him, you know? Just say nothing. Well, that's exactly where they are at the minute. So if, you know, if I go to jail thinking I'm fighting for a revolutionary socialist republic and then find that the guys around me can't even con- condemn racism, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when you went, so to describe, so there's that period, it sounds like you came out of college, you joined the movement, within no time at all, you were caught as such with, with uh, arms. And that no, I was, I, was in the, I was in the movement long before I, uh, okay. I was in the movement. Thinking of renovating or extending your home this year? Perhaps something a little smaller? New bathroom, new kitchen, help with soft furnishings? Well, look no further than Nine Yards Design Interior Design Studio. Based in Dublin 14, their services are for clients who want help planning and creating a beautiful interior for their home. They can do everything from designing the initial concept, scaled drawings, lighting design, colour schemes, soft furnishings and bespoke furniture, through to styling at completion. They have a wealth of experience working on different size projects from one room to a full redevelopment and can offer their services nationwide. So if you're looking for a touch of class or that's something a little bit different that sets you apart from the rest, check out their work at nineyardsdesign.ie. Before I went to Liverpool, you know, and, uh, uh, but I would have been a Sinn Féin activist and I was going up and down the road and, you know, electioneering doing the collections in the bars and stuff like that, you know. And then, you know, in the mid-80s, there are three bars close together on the Falls Road that would be Republican bars, right? And and I used to go around with my little plastic tin and I would wait till three o'clock on a Saturday. So everyone's in watching the horses and watching the football. There's a bit of a buzz and I would try and get, you know, the most, usually collecting somewhere between eight and ten quid a week, you know, in the 80s for for the shinners, right? Yeah. And that was a shoestring operation back then. It's not what it is now, as I'm sure you know. But so this, is, this is just a wee bit of what I like. It's like being a Republican and a black Republican and being actively involved 
And I went to the the final of the three bars, right? Uh, and there was a decent sized crowd, just all these working class fellas, you know, fairly hard bars, like, and I got around doing a, a collection. And I walked up to a table and there were two guys there. One of them was quite a large, heavy set guy, 16, 17 stone easy, right? And he read red ginger or ginger hair and curly and a big red face and he looked at me a quite jolly looking character and he and as I shook the tin he said and for any of your viewers coming up I'm about to use strong language here okay yeah it's all right um, they said uh, he said what's a nigger like you doing collecting money for Sinn Féin and I said and I heard him like and I said what do you say and he started the shoulders. No, we're gone. He thought this was very funny, and he, he he said, "What's a nigger like you doing collecting for Sinn Fein?" And so that you know, he had a pint in his hand, and had a couple of rounds bought ahead of them, you know. So I lifted a full pint and poured it over his head, and then it was mayhem. And he jumped <laughs> up and he grabbed another pint glass and threw it at me, right? And I and. You know, if someone else was telling a story, I think, oh, I know, you're embroidering the story a bit, but whatever way he threw it, the glass stayed upright. I ducked and it sailed over my head with most of the beer still in it and then hit the bar. It was two old lads standing over their backs, just oblivious with the wee flap caps and all on. And it hit the bar between them two and, you know, exploded and all this. And um, before I could even look back to my guy I was arguing with he jumped up and he had me by the throat you know up off my toes but it was a fucking IRA bar right and I I knew you know a lot of the faces and stuff and then uh, and they're all grabbing separating us and all this here you know and they were all in your other man's face and they're saying to me Timmy you alright you alright no did he hit you and what the fuck's that all about right so I was saying he called me a nigger right and uh Fucking hire him in the bar, we're gonna fucking whack him, right? And I had him up against the wall and all, and within 20 seconds, he was over to me, you know, profuse apologies and all of this. And I, I'd ruined his day, I'd made him soaked, you know, he's sitting, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, soaked in beer. What do you call it? And then the next day, the IRA called to my door and asked me, uh, and I've said this publicly, like, the, the IRA called to my door and asked me if I wanted him shot. If I wanted him kneecapped for what he had done, and I said, "Fuck's sake, lads, that's a bit much." You know what I mean? And uh, I said, "Look, I was just sorted out at the time," and uh, I said, "Ah, oh, but Tim, you know, you're you're doing work for us. You're doing work for the cause and all that. There, and, you know, we're opposed to racism and all that. You know, and one of the two guys who called would have been fairly articulate and." bookish and stuff, you know. And on one level, I'm thinking, "Well, it's good to know the fucking Rav got my back, right?" But um, on another, I, I said, look, if we kneecap everyone who makes a fucking racist remark to me, there's going to be a bloodbath on this falls road, right? You know, and, you know, it'd be Zimmer frames everywhere, you know, all these people limping around. So we'll let it go. I'm sorry, I just mentioned that because I, I right. mentioned yeah. the, the, the past, you know, but yeah. uh, as, as a Republican, as a Republican being black in Belfast, I've had two, I fought two wars. I fought yeah. a war against the British. Yeah, and then I had to fucking check guys like that, and and you know when I when I ended up in jail and all, I remember 
a lot of the guys from Fermanagh, you know, this is before EU excision and all of that, and a lot of the guys in Fermanagh and South Derry, Tyrone and all that, they had never seen a black guy. Never seen one. Right, yeah. and, uh, I lived in Belfast. I'd hardly fucking seen any. You know what yeah. I mean? It was white. It was white as hell when I lived there. <laughs> and uh, and I was I was saying to people recently and the documentary makers. I still go to the bars in Belfast on a Friday and Saturday night and be the only black guy there. You know, it's right. not so. You no, know, like the the leading bars in Belfast. So I was always the only black guy, only black guy in the his blocks, only black guy ever did time. And one of the other stories I'll tell you, um, when I was a kid, uh, 71, 72, 3, 4, uh, and on, but certainly when I was a child, 72, I was 6, right? So I'd started primary school, right? Uh, so I remember, you know, I can remember my first day of primary school, and I can also remember other events then, right? You know, I remember... I remember even 71, I remember Bloody Sunday, and there'd be all the black flags hanging out in everyone's windows and stuff, right? But in 72 or 3, I was standing, if I was standing in the street, um, the British Army would come into the street, and they'd, be, they'd either be in blocks, you know, foot patrol is four, four soldiers, so there'd either be four, eight, 12 or 16, roughly, right? And they'd come in, to our street, very working class Irish street. In the worst year of the trouble, 72, the Rao were really going at them. Um, I think there were 470 odd people killed in 1985. There were 56 people killed, you know what I mean? So it was the maddest year. And the British soldiers, the last thing they expected to see was this little black kid in the street, right? But they were soldiers, working class guys in the main, and um, they were also um, scared, you know. It would have been very scary patrolling Belfast in those days. Mm. And there was a lot of hostility, never mind the IRA, there was hostility in terms of women coming out and banging bin lids and blowing whistles whenever they came into the street. Uh, that's what the bin lids were about. A lot of the time was they alerted the area that the Brits were in, right? Mm. And... Uh, it also made a cacophony of noise that intimidated the Brits, put them on edge, and they're thinking, are we in the middle of an ambush? And, you know, hard to coordinate and things like that. But then they'd see me, and the British soldiers used to start getting really fucking racist, you know? Now I'm a child, primary school age, and they'd be shouting, go back to the jungle, and black bastard, and nigger, and all of this, you know, and what's a nigger like you doing in Belfast, and all this. Mm. But I realised then that, you know, in any situation, you know, like Ukraine at the minute, in any situation where there's a foreign invader, or a foreign force, or a hostile force, then one the people around me, my neighbours react, if I go, no, Tim, you're one of us, you're one of us, and don't let don't listen to those British bastards and all limeys and and then people would say go you back to England you know and uh, you leave him alone you know I was mm-hmm. only a wee black boy and I can probably look quite cute to the people in the street and all that and so people and then I realised oh my god I've got a side here I fit in you know yeah, yeah. So and uh, yeah and. Uh, so I became the most Irish man in Ireland from that, yeah. from <laughs> those days right. But the very same, the very same situation would also happen 
and sometimes brave soldiers would come into the street, but there'd be one thing different. There'd be a black soldier among them, mm. and they'd come into the street, and his mates would still be just as racist, and they'd be saying things like, Joe, is he your son? Is he your brother? And they'd be saying to the black soldier. Yeah. And they'd be shouting nigger at me and go back to the jungle and there's your daddy and all of that. And so people in my street got offended again. Yeah. But then people in the street or in the area would say, well, what about him? He's a fucking nigger too, you know? Go you back to the jungle. And then they turned to me and say, no offence, Tim. <laughs> oh, and I'd be thinking... <laughs> Sorry, what's the logic here? You know, yeah, that's very and uh, and then and then it became, well, they're racist when they say it, but when we say it, it's not. Yeah, it's not racist, and it shouldn't hurt you. These are great stories, Tim, because they give us sort of uh, a personal background to the bigger, wider picture yeah, that we were speaking right. about earlier. Yeah. You know, it's it, they're great because growing up in Belfast. As a young man, would be difficult enough. Yeah. Ever side of the fence you're on. Yeah. In yeah. fairness, interest of balance. Um, but also to be to be a young black boy as well. It's, I mean, you know, we make a big deal of of people like Phil Linnett here in Dublin. Apparently, <laughs> he used to walk down Grafton Street, a big Afro. He was six foot something, yeah, yeah. big Afghan no. coat. People thought he was like an alien. Like they yeah. they couldn't. Yeah. But that's all. That's all our reference points are to these. Almost I went down as a journalist. As a journalist, I went down to interview Paul McGrath, the footballer. Oh, yeah, okay. And I interviewed him down in the Morrison Hotel. And this would have been around the year, either side of the year 2000, maybe 2001, actually. And I was a journalist doing well, and I was all proud of myself, you know. Made, made, uh, made a good effort at being something other than a taxi driver or a barman after getting out of jail, you know, and pleased with myself that I got away with being in journalism because, you know, it's not normally a role for ex-prisoners, right? And sure. um, and you'd have been viewed with suspicion or if, if the royal visit was coming, if I had advanced information, I would have been seen as a you know, security threat and stuff like that, you know? So, and, you know, the media in Belfast tends not to be very Republican. Even the nationalist media is quite SDLP and stuff, right? Yeah. Slightly changing now because it's okay to be pro-United Ireland now. That is at least a legitimate aspiration, if nothing else, you know. You were telling us about being sent on assignment to interview uh, Paul McGrath. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went down, I went down uh, to interview Paul McGrath. And it was just the, the look at the time. But he showed up and I showed up. And we were both wearing black suits, black shirts, black ties. Although the only difference was I was slightly cooler because I was wearing black trainers and he was wearing <laughs> shoes. You know? And we are in the Morrison Hotel. And uh, TG Cahar were recording a lifestyle show. So it was this blonde, attractive blonde woman walking around looking at the Morrison Hotel, right? And then they spotted Paul McGrath. And uh, they asked him, you know, Amal uh, Gilgog or Amal Gilgog, you know. And uh, I don't have any Irish, by the way, just a couple of phrases. But they tried the to old... get, yeah, yeah. They tried to get me and Paul McGrath to speak in Irish. And, oh, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. So like they were doing something like, and who should we stumble across in the Morrison Hotel? But, you know, we're <laughs> looking at all this sort of John Rotham minimalist sort of stuff going on and, 
and I'm going, ah, time, but boil them, but boil them, nah, but boil them, you know, and they're no stiguija, yeah. And then, and, uh, and then, uh, and then, so the, the finish up was just this little surreal bit, and I said, and I just turned, I'd be quite a cheeky guy as well, and whatever. I said, fuck's it, Paul, when we walk into this room here, they're going to think we're the fucking jazz band, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Two black guys walking in, you know? But, uh, and uh, so, at one time, I, when I got out of jail, I, I did a media course, and, uh, and as part of the course, six weeks training on radio, six weeks in the newspaper, six weeks on television, well, video, right? But the course was aimed at the long-term unemployed. So it wasn't exactly your high flyers, you know, it wasn't Chris Evans or somebody, you know, <laughs> or Gay Byrne. It was people who, you know, hardly went in it on time and all that, right? But I, I fitted in because I was only out of jail. And uh, and the guy said to me, Tim, you know, if you want to get in, that's oh, not a bad wee course. The fucking, you know, it's low level. But nine months of it, you go on a placement. Right, I ended up in a placement at Sky Fucking News, right? <laughs> just out the fucking dip, you know, just out the yeah. the, the curtains were still swinging in the cell of my in the jail, <laughs> my cell, and I'm walking into G, uh, GMTV and Sky News, all right. And as part of that whole period, I also did freelance work, and so I got out in '95 and in '96 and '97, and I think '98. You just might remember the protests at Drum Cree by the loyalists. The yes. big sea of orange men who wanted to walk down a, mm. a little banal, dull road in, in Portadown mm. or in Lurgan um, just to get one over on the Catholics who lived there. And it became a big standoff every summer. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So foreign TV crews came in. So the, the first couple were seriously heavy stuff, right? And the foreign TV crews came in and I was hired by a Swedish version of ITV or RTE to um, bring them around, sit in the front of a Volvo and say, no, we're now on the Shankle or no, we're now on the Falls. And arrange interviews with Jerry Adams and Ian Paisley and all of that, right? Just a fixer, right? But uh, easiest money in my life and great stuff. And, um, and I helped them find them good stories, both political stories and more colour type stories right and we heard they came over and we knew that there was going to be trouble there was talk of trouble in Derry in August for the apprentice boys right because people had been battered off the road at Drum Drum Cree by the cops and the talk was that the Republicans would stop the loyalists from marching in Derry in retaliation so we went up to that Derry had only had one hotel at the time and it was booked out so we ended up having to book a B and b outside Derry, right? I made the call and said, you know, when or no, I think they made have made the call, but they said we were two reporters from Sweden and a local a local guy, right? And um, we need three rooms. So we stayed in Eglinton. It's a little Protestant town outside of Derry on the water side, you know, the, the Northern Ireland side. And we went in now in those two or three years, the tourist industry in the north was wiped out, you know, because there was ongoing riots and stuff. So this sweet old couple, white hair, we white hair, look like the queen or her white like the queen's, right? Open the door and, and said, oh, you're, you're our first visitors. And, you know, it's been a tough time, but we're so delighted. We weren't sure if you're going to make it. We're so delighted you're here, right? We're still standing at the door. They haven't even sort of invited us in. We're standing there. So it's, 
me and a Swedish woman reporter, brunette, and a Swedish cameraman, right? And so this uh, wee old woman is looking at the three of us and she said, um, so who's the local? And I said, oh, that's me. And she said, oh, get away, you're not Irish. <laughs> I, said, I said, oh, I think you'll find I am. And I said, but if you, no, if you listen, Kirsty, to my accent, I'm from Belfast. My name's Bronigan. You know, I've got an Irish name. And she said, and she went, um, oh, but it's just that you're, and she gestured up and down my body <laughs> with her hand, right? And I said, I said, oh, I, I said, oh, is it the colour? I said, yeah, that sometimes throws people. And she said, oh, don't worry, son, you're not too black. <laughs> and that was going to be the title of my book. But yeah, we that's a great title. That's a, that's but we, we that's chose where you're really from because where you're really from is the yeah. question that I get asked most in life, and I've been asked, I've been asked it this month, right? And uh, on the bus, and people ask me that when I was in jail, uh, a guy doing life in in jail, um, we were sitting in a cell. There was a sort of communal cell with we TV in it. We were all sort of chill out in right? He said, Tim, actually, I feel really sorry for you. And I said, why is that? And he said, uh, said, this isn't really your fight, is it? And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, I live in West Belfast in the Falls Road. I've I've seen the Brits all my life. I've been beaten up by the Brits. I've been arrested a load of times. I've had abuse all my life. And, you know, I'm a committed Republican. And, you know, I was caught with fucking gear and whatever else, you know. I said, don't be, don't be feeling sorry for me, like you know. This is somebody from Belcoo or fucking something, you know, two horse town. And but, uh, but uh, you know, in jail, I realised that no, no matter how staunch I am, no matter how much I wrap myself in the the tricolour, you know, the first thing people are going to see is my skin colour, and they're yeah. going to and they're going to work from that. Yeah. And so when they say to me, "Where are you really from?" the word "really" in there is a challenge. To my authenticity, to yeah. my uh, family background, my beliefs, yeah. And, my, yeah. and my sense of Irishness. Yeah. And, and uh, so my book is about identity, British Irish, Catholic Protestant, mm. North, South, Black, White. Yeah. And I'm at the intersection of all of that. And, it. Uh, and it, gives, it gives interest and insights. And, and people read my book, they go... God, you made me think, I thought I knew the trouble story. And you yeah. made me think differently yeah. about something I knew. Yeah. It's a really great book, viewers. If, if you know, if you get a chance to read it, it's out there. And there was talk of a screenplay as well, wasn't there, Tim? I just, yeah. uh, like, hopefully we may see it becoming... I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in books. I'm in it books. would make a great... You could see it, can't yeah. you? It would make a great series, or, or you could see it on Netflix. It would be... An amazing story to see on the screen because it's a great book, it really is. And it's- I've had uh, three movie deals. One with the guy who made The Usual Suspects straight after the mm-hmm. book came out. He to walked in and he, he said, uh, "When I read the first two pages of your book, I thought this is a movie." So he read it. He hired a terrible scriptwriter, totally turned it on its head. I then had a, a deal, 2015-16, with the guy who won the Oscar for Birdland. The, the guy who made that, John Lesher, he bought the rights to my book. I think the scriptwriters struggle with the fact that I have the IRA as the good guys and the Brits yeah. as the bad yeah. guys. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. for example, example, the easiest time in my life, the, the least racist time in my life was in the hate blocks 
because we were all left-wing socialist Republican comrades, right? Mm. And also, but let's be honest about it, also because there was no money, no drink, and no women, right? It was easy to be a fucking socialist in those circumstances, right? right. We were. We <laughs> yeah. were all lefties, Shay, and, uh, and all of that. And jail was coming down with Marxists, right? Before I got there, the, the prisoners were so much more to the left of the movement and Jerry Adams. It's scary thinking about it, right? And it was only the Berlin Wall coming down. A lot of the Marxism disappeared almost right. overnight. I So that was 89. I, I ended up in the jail in 91. They were still talking about dealing with the aftermath of the wall coming down and how it was affecting morale on the jail. Fucking <laughs> IRA, IRA wings of the hate blocks. You know, we're talking about the morale of the lads. <laughs> the, the, the ones who were still Marxist were still saying, you know, no, you know, that was a bad example of it and all of this, you know. And I was saying, look, let's see the fucking Marxism. I'm a socialist myself, like, but you need, yeah, the, the people aren't ready for it yet, you know. I think we, I think we, we, we thought, you know, and maybe when I went in, I thought too, we'll be the vanguard of the revolutionary movement, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll be the um, fucking intellectual force, mm. you know, and, and we will uh, drag the, the, the workers with this sort of nonsense. And, what, and what was the treatment like of Republican prisoners on the H-blocks in the time? You know, obviously this was a long t- like 10 years after the hunger strikes. Oh, change, do you think? It was, uh, there, there would never be another jail like the H-blocks. See, it wasn't like this when I went up, but when I, by the time I left, the screws had come in and removed the locking mechanisms from our doors. The EU had ruled that we shouldn't be locked up in cells that don't have access, uh, don't have toilets, and we should always have, for humanitarian reasons, we should have access to toilets. So this, because because the Republican prisoners took an action, uh, and it was Bobby Story and people like him who said, right, enough of the getting up on the jail roof and throwing slates. That's not yeah. happening anymore. That's not working. We're not beating up the screws. We're not having a confrontational environment, right? And it became much more collegiate and whatever. And what happened was the screws backed away from the wings and said, well, okay, you can have the wings in the yards. We've got a big fucking gate that keeps you in there, right? So we'll stay behind this gate. But the rest of that, you run yourselves. If you want to clean the floors and all of that, go ahead and do it. And um, so we call this sort of area, uh, the prisoner area, our accommodation in the cells and the landings, canteen and the yard. We called it the commune and we, uh, we organised ourselves collectively. Everyone got a pint of milk, for example, right? So we would pour half the milk into a big urn, top it up with water. And we used that on a big ladle in it. And we, you, everyone had to use that for tea. And it meant that then half of your milk you could use either just for drinking or for cereal, right? But if you leave everyone to their own individual thing, some po- some boys get up in the morning, do a fucking workout, then they'd, they'd hammer their pint of milk, and right. then they'd be on the, then they'd be nicking somebody else's and stuff like that. We also had rules about you know violence. There was no, I it was never a fight in jail. You ask me yeah. as a black man in a white high security prison, never no one ever lifted a hand to me. The IRA had rules: no gambling, for example. No fighting, and to break both, like when the boys were playing cards, they used monopoly money. On the loyalist side, 
they were gambling for trainers and for new Rangers tops and That's you know whatever you know the, whatever uh, people were getting shell suits and all sent in and so these bullies Johnny Adair and stuff would would gamble for money ah, here I'll bet you you know play a game of cards and if I win I take your brand new Rangers top your family bought you for Christmas yeah. and so the younger guy in on the loyalist side it was much more survival of the fittest and it was the hardest men like Johnny Adair who became the OCs on, on our side I was the OC I was the OC at six and he eight for a year so I went out and on behalf of the Republican prisoners and had a, any discussions or issues we had you know the quality of the food or whatever it was I'd go out and speak to the governor and then I'd come in and deliver relay back to you know call a wing meeting and relay yeah. back to the lads you know what it was like but because I was articulate and educated and stuff and trusted by the See, IRA, oh, and yeah, yeah. need a new OC. You know, everyone did it for six months and then yeah. um, said, we need a new OC and would you do it? So it was my honour and and just as we bit of colour for you, it's like, but, you know, when you get made OC in there, you know, it's, it's pretty like, it, it's pretty much like it being your birthday. When the, the screws would tell us at eight o'clock at night, right, that's lock up, lads, final lock up, right? So everyone's making tea and getting sandwiches and, you know, getting ready to go into your cell for the night and lock up, running to have your final piss and all of that, right? The screws would say, that's lock up. And we would always wait a minute or 30 seconds or a minute. And then the OC would shout, shin glass, that's lock up, right? And so we responded to the IRA order, not to the screws yes. order. To lock up, but the first time you shout it, as in when you've just been made OC, you're meant to give a wee speech. So all the boys are sitting in the canteen in their fucking vest tops and muscle tops and shorts and all that, right? And they're all waiting. I had just been made the OC, and they're going, Right, Tim, you know, and everyone sort of laughs that off, right? Um, and you know, people tend not to make speeches, you know. Yeah. When you're dealing with guys who've been in since 78 and they were on the hunger strikes and all that, they're just going, we just fuck off, you know, tell me to lock up. But I actually said, uh, I said, well, lads, you know, I'm now the OC and uh, it gives me great pleasure as the only black man in the Hays blocks to tell 25 white men to get into the cells and lock up. They all went mad. They all started hammering the tables and all, you know. And uh, so I... Yeah, in those days, I would have been much more circumspect. I would have been much more an Irish man than a black man. Now yeah. I'd be more a black man than an Irish man, and certainly much more of a black socialist than I am. Well, not not more than a Republican, but just as much. I would put much more stress on my blackness now. And yeah. like I say, I'm going to present the awards up in Derry later this week and all that. In the 80s, I would have been very, very timid. My yeah. blackness, I never yeah. talked about, I never talked about the circumstances of my birth, which maybe I should be telling your readers or, or listeners about. So I'll tell you about that in a second. But no, um, my book is called Where Are You Really From? The word really is a challenge. And that challenge comes from everybody, including guys who I was in doing jail with who still doubted my commitment and stuff like that, right? And everything in my life is a negotiation around that. It should be called, where are you really from? That's how we'd say it in Dublin. <laughs> ah, all right, okay, yeah. I think the emphasis on really is, is there's a question. Yeah. There's a question yeah. on 
line. You know, it's, oh, there's no, already a, a suspicion. Lot of the a lot of like a, a lot of the time, the way I read it is, "Were you really from?" Yeah, it is it, just a denial. It's just an Irish refusal to believe that you can be anything other than brown-haired or red-haired yeah. and freckled. It's quite, just, a, you know, just, it's quite a reactionary stance, really, isn't it? Just just before we let you, let you go, Taylor, I'd have an interest in a colourful uh, family story, not quite like yours, but, you know, I wouldn't have known my mother's grandfather because he left for the States. I uh, didn't meet my father until much later in life. I have four half-sisters, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. that would have, you know, not felt like I not fit it in lots of different ways as well. But it certainly my mother fought with my grandmother to keep me because my grandmother wants her to give me up for adoption. But, you know, when I heard your story as well, wow, your mother yeah. was a strong, strong woman. I mean, that was, that's incredible what she did. If yeah. You could, you could share that with listeners, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So my mum was a working class Irish, white Irish Catholic. Um, she grew up, she had five or six brothers, and then she came along as the first uh, girl. She's a very, very attractive woman and girl. So she was the blue-eyed girl in the family, right? And the baby and good-looking and all of that. But our family, or her family, her father and mother, um, have owned in a very, very working-class you know, run down area. They um they owned the local chip shop and the local corner shop, right? So two two premises that were focal points in the area, right? And you're talking about the 1930s and 40s here now, right? So for example, my mum's family were the first to get a proper uh, cooker that wasn't just one ring, things yeah. like that, you know? So my mum's family would have cooked a lot of the chickens are, and if people could afford it, turkeys for Christmas dinner. My mum, Christmas Eve and the day before it and all, they, my mum was working on this conveyor belt of chickens for people and, and the people would have given money for to pay for the gas. But my granny would have cooked it and all for them and, were, you know, giving people money on tick and all of that, right? So my mum grew up in that atmosphere, but her, her parents had money so that my mum was better dressed than kids in the area, for example, right? And probably a wee bit spoiled, right? So was good looking, very well turned out and stuff. And no one is this good looking girl in the area. Right? When she was 12 or 13, she was at school and just, uh, just on her personality, very feisty, very uh, something like a Bernadette Devlin type character, right? Although my mum... The same politics as my, uh, as Bernadette Devlin, and even in the early seventies and stuff, my mum was talking about Israel, Palestine, South Africa, and she took a lot of inspiration from the American civil rights issues. Right, so my mum was very pro black people and all of that, and pro uh, supporting oppressed minorities and sort of the, the the big causes of the time. Right, but when she was twelve. Uh, the teacher said, "Is there any? Daddy is want to help at uh, do volunteer work at the local, wasn't even local children's home, right?" And my mum uh, agreed, right? And my mum would go up on a Saturday and give up her Saturday and look after all these wee orphan kids, and she used to put them on a bus and would bring them up to uh, 
Bellevue Zoo up in the north of the city, or she'd bring them down to the front of the city hall, which had these grounds, you know, just grass and stuff, and they would yeah. sit there and picnic or whatever you would do, you know. But she'd bring them to parks and all that. But my mum was always affected when she saw black kids. Now, because Belfast, there weren't many black kids in Belfast, but because Belfast was a port, there were always people who had dalliances with the sailors and stuff like that, or people who came to stay for a few months and stayed in Belfast and whatever, right? So, long story short, there were uh, occasional sexual dalliances that led to uh, babies being abandoned, right? Yeah, yeah. And my mum, during the war and into the 50s, always felt sorry for them. And what she would do is... On a Saturday, she would bring the black babies or a black child to the family home and that child would be given fish and chips on the Saturday and on the Sunday would be given a proper meat and two veg dinner, right? And a few weeks, like tin of Coke or something like that. And my mum said to me, I always wanted them to know that there was a good life beyond that institution and those miserable walls and those nuns, right? And all of that. 1960, and she got married in the 50s and had three children, but her husband was a bit of a chaser, right? Bit of a womanizer. And he was a, he was a singer in the shoe band and stuff, so he had plenty of opportunities to fly his kite. And my mum yeah. caught him out a load of times. 1960s, my mum goes out there dance with three, two or three working class women. And they went to this dance. And um, this big black man six foot three six four maybe and very athletic free and i'm you know i'm six foot tall like but i'm skinny you know so this guy uh came over and asked and a strong west african accent and stuff and the west african you know nigeria ghana and all of that so west african black as they call it so really dark right and he asked my mum to or he asked he just said well one of you ladies like to dance don't even think he singled out my mum and my mum, I'm very much like my mum. So my mum would tell stories like this, right? She's a very uh, great storyteller. She, uh, her friend ran behind my mum. My mum was the focal point of the group, right? And um, always, uh, she was a life and soul. And uh, the friend ran around behind her. Now this is in the 1960s, right? And said, I'm not dancing with a nigger. My mum was mortified, absolutely mortified, and apologised to the man, and he went away. And my mum sort of berating this girl and stuff. And then when it came to ladies' choice, which was a thing back then, mm. the band started, you know, say, right, ladies, you, your turn to ask a man to dance. And so when it came to ladies' choice, my man straight across the floor and got him up to dance. And pretty much that instant started an affair, right? And they had an affair and they had a couple of flings. And before my man knew it, she was pregnant with me. And she knew because she'd caught her husband. That the marriage was dead on its feet. And she knew, I don't know, separate bedrooms type idea, but she knew this baby was going to be black. It wasn't her husband's, right? Mm. And she stressed for the duration of the pregnancy about what she'd do. And because... Her family had standing, and because I had a bit of money and a bit of property and stuff, the local priest was never out of my mum's house and stuff, and, and uh, he fussed over her and all of that. 
So my mum was worried about the stigma and the shame of it all, right? Uh, of And her parents, especially her father, were devout Catholics. He went to chapel four times a day, not for, go to mass, and then he would drop into, during his walk, he would drop into these chapels and say quick rosary or whatever, right? So my mum was absolutely mortified by all of this and stressed and stressed. And I still, no, this isn't a joke, to this day I feel that stress in my own bloodstream, mm. right? And I would um, have anxiety issues and things like that, right? Mm. Um, so she, my mum was, one of her greatest flaws would be that she was a compulsive warrior. And she got to the hospital ready to give birth and she told the doctor and she did, She chose an out-of-the-road small local hospital in East Belfast um, rather than the Royal. We live beside the Royal because she's worried that people would spot her, right? So she went to a Protestant hospital and she confided in a, a doctor and told what I've just told you, right? And he, now, this was in the days before freedom of information, before the internet and all of that. That uh, and it was also in the days of the Madeleine Laund. Doesn't nobody call them Madeleine Laundries? Excuse me, I'm blaming my trauma. Um, to think that what this doctor did, you know, you just couldn't do it now, right? But he he came out. My mum went in, had me. He came out immediately to the waiting relatives, which included her husband and her brothers and sisters. Uh, my mum had a, a mum's family that was a, a second daughter, younger than my mum, right? And they were all told, Peggy has lost the baby. Right. The doctor came out and told people that I had died. I was in a room hidden down, down the corridor, and then I was put into the baby home. And my mum waited for months till everything had settled down. And the big register in the... the, the which I've seen, it's in the Catholic records office now, but the big register from that home, my name, and it says it was eating Farley's rusks and what day I was brought into the place. And then it says, um, not for adoption. And that was going to be, that was a third choice for the book. You know, it was not for adoption. Just said in the comments section over on the right of this big leather ledger. Yeah. And my mum came back a year later and uh adopted me but in the meet during that year she brought me home every weekend and I right. said when she told me when she finally told me in 1985 that she was my real mum I said how did people not know and she said because they were used to me bringing for 20 years I've been bringing mm. black kids home yeah right mm. okay you were just another black kid and well, with that right. he fooled them all and and her own children Incredible. and even though I looked even though I look like two of my brothers, once you're told, uh, Irish homes are spicy, once you're told, oh, that's your auntie. Yeah. And you go along and believe it. And then Absolutely. when you're 30, you're at a funeral when you're 30 and somebody says, oh, did you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> it's furious. It's a great book. Yeah. The whole story is in uh, Tim's book that is, is still out there, presumably, Tim. You can still, you still get it. I know it's a few years back. Amazon. Yeah, oh god, yeah, it's still a but you know, failing that, you're going to see it on Netflix real soon, I imagine, because it's just it's yeah, an well, story. With, you're, you're very kind, generous with your time, Tim. I know some much. of these issues are, are difficult to talk about, and I'd just like to thank you for your yeah. openness and honesty. And you know, look, you still feel the way you do about you know the bigger pol political picture and stuff. If you're if you're peed off about the Sinn Fein over, um, you know, 
glad standing over with the funeral. You know, it's it's you know you're at least you're open and honest yeah. about it. Not everybody oh, has to yeah, no. it. It's, I, I, I it's legitimate. Like the local, like I tweeted yesterday, the local paper here, the Andersonstown News in West Belfast, um, they didn't put Sinn Fein on the front. Now it's a Sinn Fein paper. It's it's run by Sinn Fein yeah. members. They did not put Sinn Fein on the front page, and they never do for the royal events because what I'm saying is a common view in, in Nationalist North, you know? Yeah. And, not the politicians, uh, people on the street. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, as, and, as we uh, so there you go. It's, Thank you so much. Tim, honestly, yeah. great stuff. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for your time. Slam. Slam. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here